0: Welcome to Impulse, powered by Rayhound Adventures, Ventures, a podcast that puts different perspectives on all developments in tech and entrepreneurialism. Thank you, of course, as always, to our guests, and last but not least, you, our dear listeners. And today, I'm happy to announce that we speak with Mina Saeeds. She is a tech evangelist, a founder, a author, and a keynote speaker. And she will talk to us today about her passion for making tech more equitable, more democratic and ultimately more fair. She will be publishing a book uh, later this year in October called Fair Tech and will um, supply you with all the necessary links to be able to catch up with Mina after this podcast. So here we go. Welcome Mina.
1: Thank you so much, Neil. So if I hear democratization, it appeals to my heart because of my family background. My parents migrated from Afghanistan to Germany due to political reasons, and it was always very dear to their heart to raise your voice when injustice happens. So they wanted to give me the opportunity to have my education independent from my gender and this is also why I strongly believe that everyone should have equal access um, whether it is education or even being able to comprehend the technological revolution around us that is currently taking place so we can also shape the debate and also how our reality is going to look like.
0: Well, Mina, that's a fascinating story you have there. And in that sense, um, also great to see that um, you follow a strong purpose when it comes to uh, your sense of justice and, and also, um, you know, basically equal rights and opportunities um, for, for everyone. And maybe just to, to put a bit more context to your person. I mean, um, besides your um, family background and your history, um, currently, you are um, uh, an author, you are uh, a kind of tech evangelist, you're also a founder, and you founded um, an organization called Inclusive Tech, which is Europe's first advocacy and advisory organization for diversity in tech. Um, I, I think we already heard about uh, where this passion comes from, but can you elaborate um, also a little bit on Inclusive Tech and what the mission of this organization is?
1: Mm. So I always say if the pandemic wouldn't have hit me that hard, then I would never have founded Inclusive Tech. It all started in March 2020 during the first lockdown when I had more or less an exit existential crisis, and I asked myself, what am I going to do? And back then, I already worked numerous years in the tech industry in the field of data analytics and data science, and also had a lateral entry into the tech industry. And when I entered these spaces, I never saw myself in it. So I was always one of the 17% of women in Germany who currently work in IT-related jobs. And I thought to myself, that's not how the future is supposed to look like. I want to see diverse voices and perspectives. And diversity also means for me, it's not only what we can see from the outside. For instance, that I'm a young woman with migration background, But also beyond that, that we also have the diversity of thoughts, the intellectual diversity, which is also crucial to have debates. And this is why I founded Inclusive Tech and our mission is to close the diversity gap in tech and also shape the tech industry in a responsible way by integrating AI ethics And how do we achieve that? We do it by focusing on three key pillars, which is community, education and awareness. And it is all interrelated to each other. So we have a community of supporters behind it, people who are curious about technology or who are already established in a tech industry and also raise awareness of the topic by collaborating together with companies such as Meta, AXA or Yelp or also um, foundations such as the Heinrich Böll Foundation or even universities and schools where we come together and um, develop different formats such as workshops, training materials and more. And beyond that, we also lobby for Tech for Good, which means that we also talk to politicians, public policy managers and many more to also have influence on how the tech industry is going to regulate themselves, that they also see this not as cherry on the top, but as the foundation for everything. And right now, um, if we look even at these economic tough times, people always tend to look at diversity or diversity in tech as a luxury topic, as a privilege. But I would argue to the contrary that it is crucial because this is something that we always use on a day-to-day basis. When I wake up, I have my phone in my hands. I interact with it. It uses my personal data and it affects every one of us. And this is why we should take matter into our own hands.
0: I mean, you... Are expanding a bit on, you know, the, the meaning of technology in a broader social context. And, and I, you know, we're, we're all affected by this on a, on a daily basis, like you just mentioned. And I think, um, you know, on a le- legislative level, um, all countries and, and basically societies are challenged to define new rules, um, to, to govern, um, how tech develops going forward. This is obviously a, a really big and, and also hot topic. Um, but maybe before we expand a bit on, on that, um, just, you know, to, to mirror a bit where we're coming from. So, you know, New Ventures is a, um, company builder within a family owned, more traditional industrial company. And, you know, even there we also face the challenge of, you know, creating a more diverse organization. We come very much, you know, kind of from an engineering um driven background, traditional manufacturing, and we also face challenges going forward. So what you're saying, you know, on that high level, I very much um feel the similar kind of challenges in our organization. How can we ensure that we have diversity of experience, diversity of thought within the organization just to be able to be fit for um future challenges. Um, and like you said, in challenging times, um, you know, these kind of aspirations quickly go out the window and we're kind of back to the usual firefighting um, companies and, and industries as well, besides, let's say, the, the overall global tech field. And could you maybe share, um, some experiences there with us?
1: Mm. So companies who are more traditional in that sense, um, as we tend to call it, the Mittelstand the backbone of Europe's industry. Um, they're mostly located in the south of Germany or even Switzerland and um, are hidden champions in their field. So they are highly specialized if it comes down to their industry products. And do not always feel the urge to innovate themselves because it tends to go well to business because they are that highly specialized that they have customer relationships that run back many, many decades ago. But at the same time, we see that the international markets are changing. More competition is coming up. And because of that, they also see the need that they need to change in order to attract the best talent. And this is where diversity in tech comes into place because they want to digitalize their processes. They need the best people to be able to support them in their mission. And they mostly come more from an economic perspective because it is more about talent attraction, employer branding, and reinventing themselves in a public perception. But it is one thing to say that you stand for diversity, and it is another thing if you talk about inclusion. Diversity means that you're being invited to the party. Meanwhile, inclusion means that you feel comfortable enough to dance around those people and just be your authentic self. This is also where companies mostly fail because they always say, now we have these diverse tech talents, but then they do not put enough effort into retaining them and then are already gone after a year or even less. And this is why I always say that you need to combine short-term strategies also with mid-term and long-term strategies. And if you would structure the process, it would be a typical employee life cycle, which starts from the very first step. If I go to your career website, what are the pictures that are depicted there? What is the language that is being used? Are there even words that are gender decoded? where you might use more male-connotated words, which prevent me even from applying to that position? Or do you even offer family-friendly conditions or the possibility of part-time work, which is not only interesting for women, but also for men nowadays who also want to take more parental responsibilities? And then from there, if I apply now to the job and you're interviewing me right now, do I only see you but do or do I also see women from your organization or on un, other underrepresented groups so I can identify myself with them and also know that I would not be the only one coming in as a token and then from there also how will you treat me once I join you is there even the opportunity for me to have a mentoring program that is dedicated towards me Or do I also feel comfortable enough to raise critical topics and address them? And this is why it is also important to back it up with data. Because people always have got the feeling, okay, diversity is always about having fancy female empowerment events, but it's also about backing it up with evidence-based data so that we can also derive the right conclusions out of it that I do not only look at the number of applicants, but also being able to break it down by segments such as gender, ethnicity, disability, and many more.
0: Look, I think you perfectly sketched out the dilemma that, um, you know, thousands of uh, mid to even large sized companies in, in Europe are, are stuck in. And I think you already started to sketch out, um, you know, what needs to change fundamentally so that um, organizations can become not just diverse, but inclusive. And I think the picture you painted with, you know, um, being invited to a party, but once you're there, you just don't really feel welcome. You will be the first to leave. And I think um, to understand this challenge as more than just a kind of nice to have um, in terms of, you know, it's part of the political correct landscape, but really to understand it as the key to be successful in the future, because ultimately technology offers the huge opportunity to become more efficient, to become more productive and just simply to stay relevant. I think that is still the barrier, the mental barrier that needs to be broken through on, on many levels. So, um, yeah, it's, it's heartening to see <laughs> that you, from your perspective, have completely nailed this dilemma and, and understand it. And I think, you know, going forward, we're then all challenged to, to find new ways but maybe coming back to your um, overarching um, mission to make tech more equitable or more fair, maybe just to, to take a step back, I think one would generally assume that technology is per se kind of neutral or you know is, is, is not necessarily biased um, in, in a way that we usually link to you know, diversity and inclusiveness. So can you explain a bit where the um, unfair aspects in technology are to be found.
1: Mm. There was the great promise of technology to be this neutral instance that could eliminate all of our problems, because we humans tend to be driven by our emotions, by our subjective experiences, which sometimes makes it really hard for us to base our decision-making processes purely on facts. However, technology is also being developed by us humans. It is all human-made. And the interesting part is that we tend to place higher expectations on technology compared to human beings. If you think about technology... You always tend to blame it if there are slight inaccuracies. But if a human makes a mistake, then we tend to say, oh, it's just human. And I think this is also the dilemma we are facing. And my personal opinion is that we can't put higher expectations on technology compared to human beings because technology tends to be the same. It needs to make mistakes that then can be corrected through intervention so the system can become better over time. This is also how machine learning works. And always um, the headlines that I see is discriminating algorithms, which is not entirely true because it's mostly the data set behind it that I use to train the algorithm. And if I look at the training data set, then it is about the weight of the attributes. To give you one concrete example, um, I am designing an AI-driven recruiting system and I use training data so the algorithm can learn to select suitable candidates for the job profiles. And if I realize that in my data set, there are not enough people with migration background, and then if we look at Germany, for example, every fourth person has got a migration background, but this is not reflected in the data set, then I should question this and then think about even enriching the data set by analyzing the bias, detecting it, and reducing or even eliminating it or enrich it with synthetic data to then have it evenly distributed so I do not have the bias in the system that could perpetuate the AI system and then lead to the fact that I'm even not considered for a job because of my name or the way I look. And this is a problem that even some of the largest tech companies out there in the world face, such as Amazon or IBM, who can't handle it. And you might ask yourself, if these influential big tech companies are not able to handle that, then why should I be able to do so? And it is mostly because of the fact that there's no awareness in the organization as well as the lack of an incentive. But even if you don't do it, it has got a monetary harm for you as an organization. Because if you go out there to the market, release the technology, then it has got an impact on your employer brand, um also um on the stock market, if your IPO listed. And um of course, the waste of research and development resources that went into the technology that you then face public scrutiny and feel pressure to take it away from the market. So even the loss of potential revenue stream. And this is why I always say it is not just a fluffy, pink, nice topic, but it's also about hard facts such as Monetary incentives, as well as um, code-based approaches, that need to be integrated in a product development process.
0: I mean, you're you're describing the way that you know even technology is influenced by certain structural biases in, in in different contexts, and I think for most people, that's per se just not intuitive because there's not this understanding of how these models actually work and and how they're how they're trained. On the other hand, with You know chat gpt kind of coming on the scene late last year and and by now being used by hundreds of millions if not more than a billion people i think the discussion has changed because suddenly we have this you know incredibly powerful tool this generative ai which you know makes mistakes uh, which can't do sometimes simple math which you know um hallucinates and which very obviously can be just influenced by the way you interact with it, by the way you ask questions and the kind of um, uh, tendencies that you infer um, through the way that you you interact with it. Do you think that this um, phenomenon has actually changed um, the discourse around diversity in, in tech? And, and if so, what have you been able to observe recently?
1: That's a really good question, Nils. As far as I perceive, the shift of the public debate is that people take it way more seriously. So artificial intelligence ethics is now also a topic in the mainstream. Also thanks to OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, who also pressures the public to regulate artificial intelligence And it is the very first time that we also hear it from an influential tech CEO that he warns the public about it. And if we do not intervene soon enough, what um, disastrous impact it could have in the future. Um, This is why I also see way more requests coming in towards me. Because in the past years, I've been also working on topics around big data analytics, artificial intelligence, and diversity in tech. And people always tend to say, wow, that's really cool what you do. But now they realize that this type of work is crucial for the future. And I always say that the generative AI boom that has been catapulted by ChatGBT is the iPhone moment of artificial intelligence because people tend to feel it in a way they never felt before, because they even tend to fall in love with JGBT or have some type of emotion, because it um, gives you the impression that you're having a conversation to a human, not a machine. This is how powerful the large language model behind it is. And there's also the political aspect in a debate around artificial intelligence ethics. If you look over to the European Commission, they are debating around the very first law on regulating artificial intelligence in Europe called the EU-AI Act. And this will also have a profound impact on the private sector where they need to prepare themselves similarly to a couple of years ago when we talked about GDPR. And now the same is also happening with artificial intelligence that companies need to go through risk assessment with the AI models that they have. And if they do not fulfill certain requirements, they can even face a penalty fee. And the problem is similar to the financial markets. If you think back about the financial crisis, you had a rating agency where you went over to You got your AAA rating for your financial product portfolio and the rating agency did not have an incentive to give you a rating that would be worse because they are afraid to lose customers. Now, if we look at technology, how can we regulate it in a way that everyone has got a stake in it? Politics, society and economy. And right now we are just in the beginning on figuring out what would be the best approach that allows us enough freedom for innovation and research while maintaining enough requirements. So technology that is AI driven would not harm our citizens. The European Union is formulating the very first law on regulating artificial intelligence. And this is something that is super interesting to follow because it will state an example for all other countries that might use it as an inspiration or even follow it. And of course, it has got an impact on international companies who are also operating in European Union um, countries as well. So this is why we can't um, turn a blind eye on it and need to take it seriously. But um, we are at a point where we can't influence the um, draft of the regulation anymore because that time period is over and most probably it will take place next year. What will it mean for the private sector? It is um, similar to GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, when companies needed to equip themselves and also have the right tools where they integrated it to their website. Now, companies need to think about on how they can fulfill the requirements by the European Union and ensuring that their AI models are transparent, responsible, accountable, and even ethical. This is why artificial intelligence ethics is taken way more seriously than ever before, which also means that companies are looking for more AI ethics project managers who work closely with product and engineering departments to ensure that they have these safe AI models for the future, and also um, more thought leaders, C-level executives want to comprehend it in more detail and do not see it anymore as some side hustle of um, philosophers and other people who like to hug trees.
0: Okay, so ethical um, AI and and in that sense, in a broader term, ethical tech, um, that'll definitely be a a topic and, and also discussion that will be far reaching um, even basically then um, defining how organizations including, um, you know, mid to large size um, firms um, deal with the topic of, of AI as they use it within their organization, as they use it also towards the market. Um, and of course, you know, with this regulation going on at one point um, requirements will, will be um, clear but I think um, to wait until um, that regulation takes hold might be a bit too reactive. Where do you see um, the main fields of action now for for organizations so that they can get ready for these future requirements? And having said that, I think many companies, especially coming from the traditional sector, still struggle with you know really understanding and and you know, implementing, um, technology to their advantage. And, um, you know, what, what do you think is, is, you know, on the, in terms of rank order of things, the most important aspect that organizations need to, to look at now, how do they need to prepare so that they can, um, be compliant in the use of these technologies going forward?
1: It is um, important that the topic is driven by the C-level, that at least one person is accountable for it. Because if we look at topics such as diversity in tech or AI ethics, um, the chief technology officer does not feel any sense of commitment towards it, pushes uh, to the CHIO, the CHIO then passes it over to the CEO and um, which is why it is important to have one C-level executors who says, this is my prior topic for this year and also the upcoming years. There's also the discussion around having a new position called um, chief um, AI officer or even chief AI ethics officer. However, I do not see it as a future job, because you could also have a chief data officer who could take these matters into their own hands and uh, push the topic forward. So um, my um, assessment also for the future is that we do not need a dedicated role in the sea level for it. It makes more sense um, to have this um, in a product and engineering department because this is where all these technologies are being developed. At the same time, having this process accompanied by compliance as well as the data privacy and law department. And if we go to companies, um, also me as a tech employee, I will go through numerous trainings, None of them includes an AI ethics training, although I work um, every time on technology. And um, it is very easy to portray the picture of developers, data scientists, um, or product managers who do not take this seriously. But at the same time, if you attend university or um, even enter your job in a tech industry, you are never pressured to think about it you always work on your goals such as being super fast in developing new product features but no one looks at it from away and asks you okay how many diverse users do we actually address with this technology and when we performed the testing did we consider different user personas behind it There's no one looking at that way because there's um, no incentive or pressure behind it, which will also change with the EU AI Act that people will ask these questions also during the product development process. And um, another way to prepare yourself is to start with the basics, which is data and AI literacy. Because most people even don't understand artificial intelligence. And if I don't understand that, then how can I think about the ethics of artificial intelligence? So we need to start um, with the very basics to then be able to address the societal and ethical aspects behind it.
0: Okay, so I'm sure that's um, going to be a big challenge for many organizations going forward. And I think, like you said, it starts with general literacy and, and deep understanding. Um, next, we need to install the proper skill set within, um, let's say, engineering and, and product development. And last but definitely not least, you need that top down commitment, not only to the propagation of technology or AI within the organization, but also just to make sure that the um, use of ethical AI and, and to uh, really anticipate these upcoming standards going forward. Those seem to be right now the key areas how organizations can get, uh, ready and, and kind of future proof, um, also in terms of, uh, this new legislation coming in. Um, Mina, again, reflecting on your, your background, um, coming from Afghanistan. And I think that very, you know, deep, um, sense or, or, or drive for, for justice and, and equal rights, especially as it, pertains to, to, to girls and, and women in education, but then also in, um, in, in the professional field. Um, if we look at today's tech landscape, you already addressed the underrepresentation of females, but also if I look at the current, um, let's say founder scene, um, similarly, there's a a big underrepresentation, um, of female founders, not only in Europe. I think in, in the U.S., it's actually a, a similar picture. Um, can you reflect a bit on your, your own experiences being a founder yourself and, and, and how you see this, um, maybe in a German context? And, you know, maybe to add to that, what again can organizations do to, to really try to, um, you know, reduce barriers, uh, for, for females in tech, but also just, uh, to, to be more empowering towards females when it comes to, to entrepreneurial activity.
1: Mm. I experienced and still experience it that I'm being underestimated. If I attend an event, um, or any other networking opportunity that people tend to have a picture of, um, female tech experts or founders. And I do not fulfill the stereotype because um I like to dress uh, very feminine, um, love my red lipstick and more. And this does not minimize my intellectual capabilities. And this is a complexity that a lot of people can't comprehend. And um, this is why it is important uh, also as a female tech expert or founder to be true to yourself and not feel the need to change anything about you or even your appearance because it's okay to be who you are and not everyone needs to dress like Mark Zuckerberg in a hoodie and um, look like a, a Silicon Valley stereotype. If that's not who you are, then don't change yourself. And if we look um back at um, women and tech, um, There was a study conducted by the Boston Consulting Group called What Keeps Women Out of Data Science, who came to the conclusion that a lot of women tend to view this field as abstract, as nerdy, not a lot of impact on the business. And women tend to be driven by impact. They want to see um, the influence of what they're doing, and this is why They are not so much interested in tech jobs or even when they study a STEM subject um, after university, they will follow another career path because they always think that it might be easier to um, even make it in a more business oriented career because there are more female role models around them. If you also look at the number of female CTOs, we have approximately 4 up to 7% of female CTOs worldwide. Of course, then you will ask yourself, why should I go down that path if I do not see myself in there or people who look like me? And um, to address that, it is important to be aware of your societal responsibility and the uh, generations following you after that this should not hinder you. Actually, it should be a motivation for you to then pursue a career in tech because you know that there's a lack of you and um, you also matter, your voice matters. And this is also change. Every time if I enter a room and do not look like the rest um, of the others, I still make an impact. There will be at least one person who remembers me and then tell themselves, okay, if she can do it, I can also do it. Because seeing is believing. That's um, what I personally believe in. And um, at the same time, um, I also was in a place where I felt frustrated and uh, told myself, why um, did I take the more difficult path? Why did I not make things easier for me? But I also believe that um, great things sometimes come from pain because we also need pain and suffering uh, the same way as we need joy and happiness in our lives. Because if you experienced something uncomfortable um, something that upset you, then you also have this drive, this urge to change something about the status quo.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's uh, definitely very inspirational for any female potential um, techies and, and founders out there. And um, for sure, you're doing your part in being a, a trailblazer and, and a positive role model. Maybe in that context, can you tell us a bit about your upcoming book, which I think is, um, pretty much ready for, for release, uh, the book Fair Tech. This will be your, your first book that you published. Tell us a bit about uh, what our readers or our listeners can expect, um, in, in that.
1: Yeah. Oh, fair tech is my newest baby after inclusive tech and um, the title is fair tech. You might wonder why is it not called inclusive tech and um, my publisher as well, my manager told me that inclusive is way too academic for the so-called uh, Otto Burger in Germany and other German-speaking regions and um, ultimately it's about fairness How do we develop um, technology in a responsible, fair and inclusive way? And I cover a range of topics that I always talk about. How can we um, develop technology in an ethical way? Um, what are the lackings of our economy, of our politics and society? and what needs to change right now that we as Europe and Germany can still be at the forefront of technology and innovation? And then also, um, I have some interviews with, um, thought leaders in a digital industry, such as, um, Tina Müller the former um, Dukla CEO, who's now the CEO of Vededa or Philipp Westermeier, the founder of OMR, Europe's um, leading conference for digital natives. And um, we also discussed the topic of how much regulation is actually needed and how much freedom do we need to maintain so we do not endanger Europe and Germany as, um, industry, um, because, um, we also see a lot of, um, deep tech founders now going to other cities such as London or Tel Aviv or even New York because they do not want to have all these regulatory and legal, um, requirements to fulfill because this will also have, um, impact on how fast they, um, can have their time to market and much more. So um, this is what the book is about. And um, I wanted to have less pages, but um, ultimately the topic is so complex. And there are also some recommendations, very practical ones, what you can do as a student, as a professor, um, as a citizen, as a tech employee, or as a manager or HR professional, and much more. And, um, this is why, um, uh, we even delayed the publication date one month later. We actually wanted to release the book in September. Now, um, we will, um, come out with the book to the market, um, at the end of October because, um, the debate is changing so much right now. Also with the generative AI boom that um, I had to change also a lot of the previously written text. And this also um, shows us um, on how fast technology is evolving over time and that you always need to keep track of it. So the information you're sharing with the public is not outdated.
0: Yeah, I mean, with the speed that um, technology is changing currently, I think it must be daunting to um, actually um, put letters to the page, um, knowing that, you know, within a short period of time, um, the whole landscape has, has changed, but definitely something to, to look forward to. Um, I think it's also very valuable that you offer these very concrete and practical tips to different stakeholders, you know, what can be done on an individual level just to, to make sure that, um, technology becomes more democratized and, and more equitable. So, um, yeah, a lot to look forward. And I think the topic of how to try to make uh, Germany a place that's more conducive to uh, technology and, and to startups as a whole, I think Mina will save that maybe for a whole nother podcast, <laughs> a lot to discuss there. And that's definitely something that's also on, on our minds here at uh, Rayhound Adventures. Well, Mina, thank you so much, I'm mindful of your time now, but I think you've already given us a lot of food for thought and and a lot of inspiration, so thank you very much. Thank
1: you, Niels. it was a pleasure talking to you and I really enjoyed it, thank you. Thank you,
0: yeah, time really flew by, Mina, that's always a good sign.